This podcast is supported by Understood Explains. As parents, we are often having to figure out things as we go, and that is very true for our children's education. And to help you out, I want to tell you about a podcast called Understood Explains. This season is hosted by teacher and special education expert, Juliana Ortube, and she discusses all the things you'd want to know about individual education plans, or IEPs, what they are, why they're needed, who benefits from them, and what to expect when you have meetings with teachers. I could have really used this podcast when my son had an IEP for speech when he was six. I was overwhelmed trying to understand the process and what everything meant. The episode on Understood Explains, Does My Child Need an IEP?, was the kind of info that would have really helped me get the most out of the educational support of the IEP for my son. And if you need that kind of support, I really recommend this podcast. To listen to Understood Explains, search for Understood Explains in your podcast app. That's Understood Explains. Welcome to Mom and Mind, where we dive into all aspects of perinatal mental health and wellness related to pregnancy, birth, loss, postpartum, and new parenthood. It's so much more than postpartum depression. We raise the volume on all of these topics in the hopes that someday everyone will have the support and info that they deserve before they need it. Please note this podcast is not a replacement for treatment by a professional or professional training. Welcome to Mom and Mind. I'm your host, Dr. Kat. There is a lot going on in the world right now. We are dealing with unprecedented stress in the world. And during these times of COVID-19, the coronavirus, and needing to stay indoors and really protect ourselves, I think it's even more important and more valuable to be able to bring you information and education right to where you're at through this podcast, because none of us can really go too far right now. We're all social distancing and doing our best to do our part to stay home and make sure that everybody stays as safe as possible. And for that reason, I think this episode fits really, really well in our times right now. A lot of us are staying in home. We're with our partners and our families in ways that maybe we haven't been in a long time. And for some people, that brings great relief to have more people around. And for some people, that brings a great amount of distress for so many different reasons, all of which we can't get into today. But I think there's a lot that we can learn from our guest today, Emily Nagoski, PhD, who is a sex educator and author of Come As You Are, the surprising new science that will transform your sex life, and another amazing book, Burnout, The Secret to Unlocking the Stress Cycle. Her job is to travel all over the world, training therapists, medical professionals, college students, and the general public about the science of women's sexual well-being. And there's one chapter in particular in the book, Come As You Are, that sort of broke out and became its own book, her second book, Burnout. And you'll hear us talk about both of them. I think there's just so much value in understanding and getting this information and education in it around sex and sexuality, specifically in the perinatal period. We're going to talk about why this is a difficult period of time for a lot of people who are not finding that they have any interest in sex, why there might be a lot of conflict with partners. And I really, truly feel like everybody should be listening or reading her books. I'm really excited for everyone to learn from Emily, and hopefully this is usable information that you can bring into your daily life now. So let's hear from Emily. Welcome, Emily. Thank you so much for being with us. It's my pleasure. 
Well, I know that everyone is going to be really, really, really interested to hear what you have to say today about sex and all the things that get in the way of intimacy, or at least some of them during the perinatal period and especially postpartum. And I was first introduced to you from actually my own therapist (laughs) recommended your book to me. And I just loved it that the book Come As You Are. I just, just love it. And so easy to listen to. I, I listen to both. I'm listening to both of your books right now. Oh, yeah. On Audible. And they are fantastic. So anyhow, as soon as I was hearing it, I thought, oh my gosh, everybody needs this information. And then you were at the Maternal Mental Health Now conference. And it was amazing to just your energy and your knowledge is just expansive. And I love that. So here we are. I would love to have you share with us whatever you can about what's difficult about sex and the perinatal period. Sure. Yeah. Yeah, so let's just Lots dive of things in. are difficult, right? Right, right. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> I think because I do want to talk about like the why, like what is the mechanism in your brain that controls whether or not you're interested in sex, whether or not you enjoy sex. Let's just go straight to like the deep stuff and then we'll sort of zoom out. Yeah, yeah, yeah. So we'll begin with the dual control model, the mechanism in your brain that controls sexual response. If it's called the dual control model, how many parts does it have? Hmm, two? parts. <laughs> two yeah. parts. <laughs> One part is the sexual accelerator, which is maybe the part we're all used to hearing about. This recognizes... It's the part of your brain that notices all the sex-related information in the environment. That is everything in the environment that you see, hear, smell, touch, uh, taste, or, and this is crucial, think, believe, or imagine that your brain codes as sex-related. And when it notices that stuff, it sends the turn-on signal. Mm -hmm. And it functions at a low level all the time, including right now. We are talking about sex that is a tiny little bit sex-related. So there's a tiny little bit of turn-on signal being sent. Right. Fortunately, at the same time, in parallel, your brakes are noticing all the good reasons not to be turned on right now. Sure. Everything that you see, hear, smell, touch, taste, think, believe, or imagine that your brain codes as a potential threat. And it sends a turn off signal. So the dual process of becoming aroused is the process of both turning on the ons, but also turning off the offs. And what the research has told us over the last 20 or so years is that even though the usual advice when people are struggling with arousal, desire, orgasm, pleasure is usually about adding stimulation to the accelerator, it turns out when people are struggling, often not because there's not enough stimulation to the accelerator, it's that there's too much stimulation to the break. And sort of everything about the perinatal period Mm-hmm. It's the breaks. Right, right. Your so I, relationship I, with your body is different. Mm-hmm. Your genitals may be experiencing pain. Mm-hmm. Your entire sense of who you are as a person has changed. Your relationship has changed. Mm-hmm. And all of those are important factors in how your brain is assessing whether the world is a safe, fun, sexy, pleasurable place to be. Right. Yeah. I, minds are being blown right now. I know that based on what you just said. Just people it blew are making my mind to hear, like, just like there's a, br- I remember the day that I learned about this mm-hmm. and I had that experience of you, there's a break. How come <laughs> nobody told me this before. Right. And I was learning it in, you know, 2000 mm-hmm. when yeah. it had only been published in a couple of papers. Yeah. It, just as you were saying, there's so many ways that that break could be like, really pushed hard on during this period. 
so, so many. And I'm sure people who are listening right now are thinking about, you know, their own breaks or will be soon because they're right. There are, they're everywhere. Oh yeah. yeah. And people are often not aware that their breaks are being hit because they don't realize that there is a break. Mm-hmm. And the ironic, difficult thing that happens is that when your breaks get hit and you don't know about it, you feel judgmental about your struggle with sexual desire or sexual mm-hmm. pleasure. Mm-hmm. And then does the judgment of you like, oh, darn it, I shouldn't feel this way. This should be easier. There's something wrong with me. Does that hit the accelerator? That thought and feeling (laughs) totally hits the brakes. So you sort of get sort of pushed down into this negative feedback loop of something interrupting your sexual response. You feel bad about it interrupting your sexual response and that hits the brakes even more, which makes it even more difficult to want or like sex. And it just gets worse and worse from there. And then your partner piles on with Mm -hmm. either like feeling deprived or feeling worried about you. And you're now the diagnosed patient in the relationship Mm -hmm. and you need to be fixed. Let's fix you. Oh my gosh. And does, right. does that hit the hit the accelerator? Is that a sexy position to be in? The relationship dynamic of I am the broken one who needs to be fixed, is that a state of mind that hits the accelerator? No. Really not. Yeah. Really not. Really, really, really not. This podcast is supported by Starglow Media's Mysteries About True Histories. From the creators of the hit top-ranking kids educational podcast in the world, Who Smarted, the Emmy-nominated Nat Geo Disney Plus's Brain Games, and Netflix's Brainchild, comes Mysteries About True Histories, affectionately known as M-A-T-H, or math, in which kids ages six and up can hear humorous and educational stories that follow two best friends, Max and Molly, while they go on adventures through time solving puzzles, hidden equations, talking about history, and making learning cool. Episodes transport listeners to moments in history like Pythagoras's ancient Greece, the era of the Aztecs, Sir Isaac Newton's England, and more. When I drive my son to school in the morning, we listen to these episodes that fit perfectly in our commute, with the episodes being about 15 minutes long. And this podcast is right up my son's alley because he loves to solve problems and happens to love math and the types of punny jokes that Max likes to tell. So tune in to Mysteries About True Histories with your kids. You can follow and listen on Apple Podcasts or wherever you get your pods. When it comes to raising kids, there's so much to consider. Things like, what do we feed them? When do we feed them? How do they sleep? What does it look like to raise kind kids? How does their nervous system work? How do I keep myself calm? What are my triggers? There's so much that comes into play. And we are distilling all of that information for you at Voices of Your Village podcast, where we bring experts in the field of early childhood and education and psychology and across the board so that you don't have to comb the internet for information. You get to show up and hang out and have shame-free, judgment-free conversations and insights into what it looks like to raise kind, empathetic, emotionally intelligent humans. I'm Alyssa Blask Campbell. I have a master's degree in early childhood education. I'm a mom of two, and I am walking this journey right alongside you doing this work. Come hang out with me at Voices of Your Village, and we can dive into real conversations with actionable tips. Who, yeah, I was, as you were talking through that, I was thinking, oh, I, what I hear so often with new moms specifically is that their partner is it's like, okay, well, six weeks is up. Doctor said you're clear, so let's do this. And, oh. and <laughs> I don't mean to blow at your speakers, but the six weeks, like, it just makes me bananas. Yeah. Yeah. I don't know anybody for whom six weeks was like, I'm ready to go. <laughs> mm-hmm. Right. 
but maybe there's a couple of people out there. Sure. Absolutely. Yeah. On, on and the, the kind of spectrum. people who are likely to talk to me are not the kind of people for whom everything <laughs> right. is going smoothly. Same so here. There's a, there's a self-selection bias. Absolutely. Yeah. But also to your point, it's just way more common than not to need yes. longer than six weeks. Other than the emotional mental load of just six weeks, are there physiological things happening, brain-based things that are happening also that are related to the breaks? It's about the interaction between, so the mechanism itself As far as we know, Mm -hmm. there isn't a lot of research on this, but as far as we know, there's nothing about pregnancy or birth per se that changes the mechanism itself. Mm -hmm. It's just that the input affecting the system is changing wildly, radically during this time. The actual physical circumstances of your genitals being involved in a really major life event, whether you mm-hmm. give vaginal birth or not, mm-hmm. your genitals are going through something yeah, at yeah. this point. And the whole meaning of your body has changed. The, what your genitals mean, what your breasts mean, what your body is for, what touch means. You get so used to like the child-oriented touching mm-hmm. that when your partner touches you, it doesn't turn on, hey, sexy lady. It's just more <laughs> touch. And so people get touched out. Right, right. And it's because people don't think of meaning as being a brain state, but it is. Mm -hmm. The way your brain perceives a sensation is determined by the state of mind it's in when that sensation comes in. So take tickling, for example, it's my like classic. I know tickling is not everybody's favorite, Mm -hmm. but if you just imagine you're already in like a fun, sexy, playful, flirty erotic state of mind with your certain special someone and they tickle you, that can feel fun and playful and lead to other things. But if that exact same certain special someone tries to tickle you when you're pissed off at them, right. you want to punch them in the face a little bit, right? <laughs> yeah. It's the same sensation with the same certain special someone, mm-hmm. but because the context is different, because the meaning of the touch mm-hmm. is different, your brain literally interprets that sensation as the opposite. Mm-hmm. And this is happening at the level of like the nucleus accumbent shell. Like they can break it down to the specific area in the emotional brain that is uh, switching when your mental state changes. I love neurological. I love that you are bringing that in because it gets so foggy during this uh, perinatal period of time and everything feels so personalized that that it feels like this is just a me problem. Like there's something wrong with like who you are fundamentally, your soul, your spirit, your like your essence. But oh my gosh, there's this little thing in the brain that is affected right now. That is doing its job. It's Uh whole purpose. What it is helping you with is responding to the context you're in and changing the way your brain responds to the world based on that larger context. How important is that? Because if being tickled under any circumstances felt playful and good, if having your clitoris touched under any circumstances felt playful and good, you would end up being interested and enjoying sex in really inappropriate situations. Like you're being, you know, chased by a lion, evolutionarily Mm -hmm. speaking, Mm -hmm. or you're, you know, being running away from the enemy. Mm -hmm. That is not a time when you are supposed to be responsive to sex and pleasure. That's a time when it's really important to stay focused on the here and now and fixing what the problem is. Mm. So when things go away in response to your context, that's your brain helping you. The question is not what's wrong with my brain. It is what changed in my context that's making my brain, my desire, my arousal do this. 
And is there anything I can do to change my context to help my brain be freer? Right. Yeah. As you were speaking to that point, I was thinking of, you know, the line example and in particular with, uh, for somebody who has a brand new baby, their environment is such that there could at any point be something to attend to. It's sort of erratic and that there's no pattern. It happens when, you know, you least expect it. There's a baby crying or there's like poop everywhere or whatever. And so it's also an unpredictable environment. And I can't imagine that in and of itself leads somebody to be in a calm, relaxed, playful state. And literally just the disruption to your, sh- to your sleep yeah. is a physiological stressor. It increases your cortisol levels. It increases your adrenaline levels. It makes your brain prone to interpreting literally everything as a threat the sleep deprivation alone, which is sort of unavoidable when you've got a newborn. Uh, That's real. Yeah. Yeah. That's a, that's a neurological phenomenon. We know for sure Mm -hmm. that even just a little sleep deprivation reduces your immune functioning. It reduces your digestive functioning. It definitely impacts your sexual functioning. And that's, that's not your fault. That's not a problem. That's your body responding in normal, healthy way to a really severe stressor. Now, can you get through infancy without sleep deprivation? No. So you just tolerate it for the length of time that it takes. Right. And then that's the thing is people don't need to mostly worry. If your context changes in a way you cannot control, that definitely does hit the brakes. Okay. Mm-hmm. And that context will almost certainly change again. Like nobody wants to stay in a sleep deprived state for years at a time, though I definitely know parents whose kids are bad sleepers. I have one friend whose son has Down syndrome and kids with Down syndrome have are difficult sleepers. Mm -hmm. And she spent eight years really intensely sleep deprived. Mm. We talked to me about it all the time and the ways it was impacting her cognitive functioning and her like emotional self-regulation. These are real things that happen as a result of chronic sleep deprivation. So when she wanted to talk to me about her sex life, I was like, okay, that's a low priority. (laughs) Right. No, absolutely. Uh, Right. So this six weeks or eight weeks or whatever, it's not like you are also sleeping at eight, six weeks and eight weeks and all of a sudden all these brain functions are on board too. I mean, I wish doctors would be like, so six weeks, maybe your genital tissues will be healed. Right. (laughs) Maybe. Maybe. And at three months, your baby's brain may have adapted to this whole 24 hours a day situation. Hmm. Maybe. Maybe. And at a year, you and your partner might feel like if you have a partner, you're really like getting this whole baby thing Mm -hmm. and you're a team together, working together again. Mm -hmm. Maybe. Right. For me, those are three really crucial like benchmarks that people bear in mind. Your sexual response is just not about whether or not your genital tissue has healed. Mm -hmm. Right. But that's what it's been reduced to. And I think this is why people get so frustrated and confused. Like, well, the doctor said I should. And so I should. And like you said, all that judgment piles on. Yeah. I don't know how to stop doctors from saying six weeks. Mm. (sighs) Yeah. Yeah. I'm not not sure. But if families can learn to hear the six weeks as no sooner than, Mm -hmm. maybe that'll help. And let's normalize that six weeks is just the beginning of the place where you start exploring what erotic touch feels like with these new bodies you've got. Because it's not just the birth parent whose body is going to be different. Mm -hmm. Right. Right. Partner. 
is going through their own transition and their own stress changes and oh, so, so many things. And is part of the relationship transition that's happening in that moment. Right. This is a system. Everything is like trying to work together again after this major, major change. And so certainly, right, giving each person or persons in the relationship a time to figure this out seems pretty important. Mm Mm-hmm. Whenever a system undergoes a bifurcation this massive, there is necessarily a time of chaos Mm -hmm. while the system reorganizes itself. And just like you don't want to like judge your sexuality for being, for the brakes being hit, you want to not judge the chaos. Just be like, here's the chaos. This is normal. (laughs) Right. It's chaotic. That's how it's supposed to be. And we will find our way. Mm-hmm. to peace and balance and connection. And there's going to be some more chaos later that will disrupt us again. And we will find our way back to each other again. That is the natural, healthy ebb and flow in a relationship that lasts for a long time. Oh, yeah. Long-term. Right. And maybe even having the kind of long-term view of the process and the transition is helpful for people that this this period of time isn't forever. Yes. But as you said, like chaos is such a good word for for what it feels like and what it can be like, really, everything all over the place all the time. That's a stressful environment. So if there are so many breaks happening all the time, you know, breaks being pushed constantly during this period of time, yeah. how, do, how what do people do if they want to consider how to, you know, navigate those breaks? So the first thing is seeing if you can identify what it is that's actually hitting the breaks. Is it st- just your exhaustion? There's a cure for that. Mm-hmm. Extra rest. <laughs> right. Is it that there's tension in your relationship, a breakdown in trust and feeling like your partner's really there for you? There's a way to deal with that. Therapy is always on the table for me. Mm-hmm. Um, and there's also just talking to your partner about the ways you would love to feel like they're more present for you, the ways that you need them to mm-hmm. be there to support you during this difficult time. So that even in the midst of the chaos, their presence is stabilizing and loving and reinforces your sense that like, when we get through this, I'm going to find my way back to you. And I'm going to be so glad you're still here. Mm-hmm. Relationship stuff is, yeah. and body stuff. If a person has a sexual trauma history, mm-hmm. sometimes the process of childbirth, even pregnancy itself of having a new child in the home can activate trauma that even it felt like it was healed for a long time. You thought you were done with that stuff. And then here it comes breaking back into life. And that's another thing we were just like, and that's happening now. Mm -hmm. And I have done healing before and here's an opportunity for more healing. Hooray. Another growth opportunity. (laughs) Right. Right. But for a lot of the people that I meet with, the breaks are on constantly with that. There is no like, it's a, almost a decision out of safety. There were, you are not touching me. You're not looking at yes. me. Like we're not doing this because everything feels bad. Yes. And when that's the case, a lot of sex therapists actually make the mistake of trying to push a couple right into something like sensate focus, mm-hmm. which is a sex therapy where you begin like being naked in the bed and touching each other one person at a time. And for a lot of couples, especially for the person who's like, nope, the lower desire person, they don't even want to start with that. They need more distance than that in order to feel safe. They need sex to be removed off the table, Mm -hmm. no pressure, just a lot more distance. I tell this story about a couple where the therapist asked the couple to stand up 
and create as much physical distance between them as they needed to feel like that was the right amount of distance. And the lower desire partner created, like put her back against the wall, mm. created as much space as there was because that's how far she needed to be in order to not feel criticized and mm. judged and expected to have sex mm. and pressured into it. Because if she took even one step forward, she felt like that was going to turn into her partner pressuring her and expecting her and insisting that she have desire and judge and blame her and call her broken and diseased if she didn't want it. So that's a couple where just diving right into sex therapy is not going to be adequate. You have to restore the trust, Mm -hmm. which means allowing the lower desire person to step closer and closer one step at a time without the higher desire person reacting in any way, pushing Mm -hmm. in any way. Mm-hmm. hoping in any way that I know we took sex off the table, but like, this is really feeling very good. And Hey, but how about we blah, blah, blah. Mm-hmm. If a lower desire person is in a situation where they have agreed that we're not going to have sex and I'm just going to be allowed to touch you in an affectionate way mm-hmm. without there being a push or a demand, it could be so healing because that touch, that connection, that sense of being held, the literal physical connection with another human being is so important. And if we can't access that without thinking it's going to turn into my partner feeling rejected and telling me I'm broken if it Mm -hmm. doesn't turn into sex, Mm -hmm. it's just like it deteriorates the relationship. Pretty quickly. If you can have non-sexual just touching and sharing connection like that, amazing. And it's the lower desire partner, the higher desire partner needs a lot of discipline to be able to participate in that non-sexual touching in a way that does not in any way activate the dread Mm -hmm. that the lower desire partner may be feeling of being pressured into doing something, of having an expectation around their sexuality that they are not going to meet, Mm -hmm. which both makes them feel pushed and uh, criticized and uncomfortable, but also makes them feel self-critical mm-hmm. and judgmental that they're broken and doing it wrong. Wow. It takes both partners participating in that decision to take sex off the table and just love each other mm-hmm. without sex having to be a part of that necessarily, temporarily. Oh, right. Oh, yeah, yeah. And thanks for bringing in the temporarily too, because I, I think some partners get freaked out like, oh my God, we're never going to have sex again. I literally, again. I talked to a couple and so their sex life went away somewhere in the middle of the pregnancy Mm -hmm. and they had struggled. Their baby was approaching toddlerhood. And the only times they had had sex in those years was when she had felt sort of like guilty and obliged enough to go and have sex for the sake of him Mm -hmm. feeling okay. Mm -hmm. And he no longer wanted to have, like he felt bad about that. He wanted her to want him, of course. Right. Right. And then when I said, so what you do is, and these are people who had read Come As You Are. They came to one of my workshops because they read Come As You Are. They loved it. It really Mm -hmm. helped them. And when I said, you know, you take sex off the table and they were like, yeah, we read that, but for how long? And I looked at the pair of them and it had been months since they had had any sex. And I said, I'm going to say three months. He got this look on his face. Like I had told him he was not allowed to eat for three months. (laughs) And I was like, so let's pause for a moment. (laughs) What do you think, sir, it does to your partner to see that look on your face Mm -hmm. when I say no sex for three months? Mm -hmm. And he was like, "Uh, it makes her feel bad. And I was like, partner, (laughs) how does it make you feel when you see your husband make that face at the idea of not having sex? And 
out it all came, the feeling judged, the feeling shamed, Aww. feeling broken, feeling so isolated, mm-hmm. wanting so much mm-hmm. to be there for him, but mm-hmm. just, like brokenness that she felt inside herself made her not able to be there in the way that she was desperately longing to. So it really takes the other partner being able to like relax and not feel neglected, not feel abandoned Mm-hmm. And be able to find a sense of connection through something other than sexuality. And I know a lot yeah. of this was a heterosexual couple and a lot of dudes in particular, they get trained from really early on in life that they are not allowed to access a sense of connection and love and holding and acceptance except through their penises. Yeah. And if their partner is like, I am not interested in your penis. Mm-hmm. It feels like their partner saying, I am not interested in you. I do not accept you. I don't want connection with you. I do not love you. Mm. Of course, that is not what they're saying. Right. Unless occasionally it is. Sometimes it is for sure. But sometimes the female partner in this scenario is wishing they could, wishing they did have desire. Um, Yeah. And wishing your sexuality were different. mm -hmm. Does that have the accelerator? Mm Mm-hmm. Totally. It's the break. You know, I hear people talk about libido as like, I have low libido or I have a high libido, but I hear you saying desire, high desire versus low desire. Can you differentiate those for us? So libido is a Freudian term that I don't use because Freud. (laughs) Word. It's it's a term that doesn't show up in the science hardly at all anymore. And I hear it primarily from journalists. Mm -hmm. It's, It's a word that gets used in the mainstream. It does not mean anything from a scientific point of view. Great. From a nerd perspective, Mm -hmm. you'll hear me using the words desire, arousal, and pleasure, or wanting, liking, and learning or relevance, sex-related information, Mm -hmm. because those are the words that reflect the tripartite nature of the affective neurological system that controls sexual desire. So what usually gets called the pleasure centers of the brain Mm -hmm. isn't just the pleasure centers. Pleasure is definitely part of it. You have these opioid hotspots in your emotional brain that just responds to when something feels really good. It like lights off these sparks. And then there's your wanting system, which is the desire system, which is the pursuit of something. It's curiosity, it's approach, it's desire, it's longing, it's exploration and The two are definitely related to each other, pleasure and desire, Mm -hmm. but they are not the same system and one can exist without the other. And it is really important that we differentiate between whether we mean desire for sex instead of liking of sex. One of the reasons it's so important that we be really clear about the difference between desire for sex and pleasure is because sexual desire differentials So a difference in desire between partners is the most common reason people seek sex therapy. Mm -hmm. And yet, among people who self-identify as having extraordinary sex, when they describe what it means to them that they have extraordinary sex, desire is not on the list. Interesting. Desire is not part of what great sex looks like. Mm -hmm. Pleasure is the central feature. Mm-hmm. And that pleasure is not just about body pleasure because there's no such thing as just body pleasure right. or else tickling would always feel good, right? Mm-hmm, mm-hmm, it's right. about creating a context between you and whoever you're having sex with that lets your body interpret the world as a safe, fun, sexy, pleasurable place. Mm-hmm. So the couples who have great sex lives are the couples who put the work in 
to understand what context hits the accelerator, lets all of the brakes go away, and then they do what it takes to create that context. They plan it. They absolutely have scheduled date sex. Mm-hmm. That's what great sex looks like in long-term relationships. The couples who sustain a strong sexual connection over the long term, like multiple decades, are not couples who constantly can't wait to put their tongues down each other's throats. They are not the couples who have wild, adventurous sex. They're not even the couples who have sex very often. Almost none of us have sex very often. We're busy, right? <laughs> right, 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 right. Instead, uh, there yeah. are couples who have a really strong friendship at the foundation of their relationship, and they prioritize sex. They decide that it matters for their relationship, that they create windows of time that are protected from everything else where they just let their bodies touch. And it is normal and healthy for there to be times during a relationship when sex is not that priority. Mm-hmm. Well, for sure. In your book, you have mentioned that the difference between, again, we're talking about heterosexual couples here, but the difference between somebody who has like sexual arousal first and then a person who, who like uh, the person who after, I think, as you say, like laying in bed and touching each other realizes like, oh, I like this person. I do want to have sex with this person. Yeah. Um, That's a person who has desire first. So you're just sort of like walking down the street or you're having lunch doo, 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 and you're sort of like, I feel horny. Mm-hmm. I would like to have sex tonight. How about we have sex? And you go home to your partner like, hey, you want to have sex tonight? Literally got told this story by a woman who was like, so this morning I was changing the diaper. Both my husband and I were getting ready to go out and I'm changing the baby's diaper. I am wrist deep in poop. And my <laughs> husband swats me on the ass and says, hey, do you want to have sex tonight? Mm-hmm. The answer is no. If right. that's the context in which you're answering, in, in which you're asking that question, right? No, that is not a context where her brain's going to be like, "That's a really good idea." Mm-hmm. And there's so many other things he could have said and done in that moment mm-hmm. to increase mm-hmm. the likelihood that her brain would be interested in sex later in the day. Right. So many other things. Um, so, for let's say later on in the night, then they, for whatever reason, she decided that yes, okay, let's do this, but still wasn't like into it. I believe you talked about that at some, like desire happens, can happen after sometimes things have already started. Yeah. So the, I know we're used to the story where like desire comes first and then comes all the genital response and then you like cuddle for a minute and go to sleep. It turns out neurologically, that is not how sex happens. It is arousal and pleasure that comes first. So one narrative is this sort of like spontaneous, it's called spontaneous desire where it mm. seems to appear out of the blue, right. but actually what it is, is spontaneous desire emerges in anticipation mm. of pleasure. Mm-hmm. And that is one normal, healthy way to experience desire. Mm-hmm. But then there's this other thing called responsive desire where your desire emerges not in anticipation, but in response to right. pleasure. So you're like Saturday at three o'clock, you, me in the red underwear, we said we were going to do this thing. <laughs> so... Let's go, buddy. Uh-huh. So you put your body in the bed, you, your partner in the red underwear, and your body goes, oh, right. I really like this person. Mm-hmm. I really like this. This is great. So the desire emerges in response to the pleasure. Bearing in mind that pleasure only happens in the right context. It's not right. going to happen in a context where you feel judged or criticized or pressured or right. critical about your own body or any of those other things. You create a context that lets the breaks go Mm -hmm. and the accelerator will take over. Right. So given that scenario that you mentioned before, if, if 
the day went in such a way where the partner could feel like, okay, not stressed out. Like this is totally possible. I'm into the idea of this. They still might not be, you know, have the arousal. Yeah. They're in a context that's safe enough or happy enough or whatever enough to say, okay, let's do this. And then still might not be like totally aroused until... Yeah. You might just show up being, it's uh, so one of the best metaphors I've ever heard for this. I learned from a sex therapist named Christine Hyde. She's a sex therapist in New Jersey. And she says to her clients, so imagine your best friend invites you to a party. Mm -hmm. You say yes, because it's your best friend and it's a party. But then as the day gets closer, you start thinking, I'm going to have to find childcare. There's going to be heavy traffic. Am I really going to want to put on like real clothes on a Saturday night? I don't know. But you know what? You said you would go. So you put on your party clothes and you show up to the party. And what happens? Often you have a good time at the party. Mm -hmm. If you are having fun at the party, you are doing it right. What matters is that you show up. Right. And you know what? If you are not having fun at the party... There is no amount of longing to go to parties or being in the mood for parties <laughs> that's going to make that party worth going to. All right. Ooh, yeah. Context, context, context. Yeah. It's the way uh, there's another sex therapist. This is the sex researcher who studies people who have optimal sexual experiences. Those folks who self-identify as having extraordinary sex lives. Mm. Her name is Peggy Kleinplatz. Her book is coming out soon. It is amazing. It's called Magnificent Sex. Awesome. Everyone should buy it immediately. It is extraordinary. And it's going to change how people understand sexuality. But the way she puts it to her clients is what kind of sex is worth wanting? Often if she has a couple, they come in, they've got differential desire. There's a low or no desire partner. And she says to that partner, so tell me about this sex you don't want. Hmm. Because then maybe we can find other sex that you do want. Right. A simple and powerful question. Yeah. Like how many times are people being asked that? Never. No, people get really wrapped up in desire. We've gotten to a place as a culture, I don't know how it happened, where we very much measure our sexual well-being in terms of how much we crave sex. Even though the research has been very clear for 20 or 30 years that desire is not the thing, Mm -hmm. pleasure is the thing. Mm -hmm. But did you know that people believe you more when what you say rhymes? <laughs> they remember it better <laughs> and they believe it more. So I made it rhyme. Ready? Awesome. Pleasure is the measure. Right. Well, hey there, busy mama. Are you looking for ways to make your life easier, your home less chaotic, and at the same time, add more joy to your life? My name is Deanna Yates, and I'm the host of Wanna Be Clutter Free, a podcast all about letting go of the stuff we don't need in our lives so that we can focus on what truly matters. Don't worry, I'm not going to tell you to throw it all away or make you feel guilty about keeping something you love, no matter how many other people don't quite understand it. But I will give you practical and more importantly, actionable advice so that you can make progress right away. And you won't just hear it from me. There are amazing guests too. It's like having your bestie in your pocket, telling you it's okay to let go of the things that are not serving you and your family in a totally non-judgmental way. So join me over on the podcast where we can work on progress over perfection for those of us that want to be clutter-free. Hey there, I'm Debbie Reber, the founder of Tilt Parenting and the author of the book, Differently Wired. The mission of Tilt is to change the way neurodivergence, whether that's having a learning disability, having ADHD, being gifted, autistic, or some combination of all of the above, is perceived and experienced so differently wired kids and the parents like us raising them can truly thrive. 
On the Tilt Parenting Podcast, I get to talk with authors, therapists, educators, and parenting experts who are committed to this mission. I ask the questions my listeners are most curious about when it comes to supporting our kids. And in turn, my guests share strategies for challenges, out-of-the-box ideas for navigating school, best practices for therapies, tips for advocating, and so many thoughtful insights on what it really takes to help our kids grow up feeling seen and respected so they can create awesome lives for themselves. I know that raising a differently wired kid can feel overwhelming and isolating, but I promise you, you are not alone and it can feel so much better. If you're on this parenting journey, come listen to Tilt Parenting. Together, we can shift this paradigm and show up for our exceptional kids with hope, possibility, and joy. Pleasure is the measure of sexual well-being. It is not how much you crave, desire the sex. It's not how often you have it or who you have it with or what rooms or even what orgasms you have. It's whether or not you like Mm -hmm. the sex you are having. If you like it, you are doing it right. If you're having fun at the party, you're doing it right. Right. And I imagine for, especially for a postpartum person, those experiences would be accumulative. Like we have like one, I'm super stressed out, but we have this one good connected experience that might help lead to other good and connected experiences. Absolutely. Because it teaches your brain that you don't need to dread or fear or worry that something bad is going to happen, whether that something bad is your partner feeling judgmental or critical of you Mm -hmm. or an experience of pain Mm -hmm. that interferes with sexual pleasure Mm -hmm. or a disruption in the form of the friggin' baby. Right, right. Bang in the middle of it. Yeah. So there are some pretty common things that punch the brakes in this period of time. Like you said, sleep is one. Tension in the the relationship. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Stress. Right. You made me then think of your book, Burnout, which I'm loving. It's so good. And I really, I can't tell the difference between you and your sister's voice pretty much at all. I'm sure you guys can. My sister's husband, who is a professional musician, said the same thing. Oh, really? It's amazing. You guys sound absolutely the same. Uh, So I'm glad you uh, identify who's talking because it's helpful. But anyways, yeah, the stress For the record, my sister is my twin. Yeah. So people know. Yeah. that I mean, maybe that does help. You have twin voices for sure. But yeah, so one of the chapters in Come As You Are ended up being like a full book called burnout essentially. That's exactly what happened. Yeah. And it's phenomenal. I, I think everybody listening should listen to both or I, I listen to books or read it if you choose to read it. But yeah, I take audiobooks really seriously. The only thing I asked for in my book contract was that I narrate the audiobooks. Thank you. Thank you. It really because mattered to me. It's painful to hear anyways, other people yeah. speak your own words. So narrators um, really make the big difference. And when it's sexuality, like you think kind of anybody can just read these words, but it takes training to be able to talk like about vulvas and clitorises and orgasms and desire and intercourse in a genuinely neutral, warm voice. Right. A lot of just like professional available actors reading it would be prone to slip into that like, hey, sexy, kind of like fake, (laughs) flirty right sex in the city kind of voice and i was mm-hmm. i was not here for that i was like no. i know how hard this is i'm the one who can do it yeah it's and they're both so good I, and so the stress load and the burnout i think burnout mm. even in the perinatal period is super real because oh there's like such a massive new load of things to do and still do all the other things and mm-hmm. so i as I'm, I'm halfway through burnout so as i'm listening to it i'm thinking oh my gosh this is part of what happens people are just overloaded and then feeling yes. like they need to do everything all the time and do it well. And yeah. it's too much. 
one of the ideas I wish had existed at the time of come as you are is this thing of human giver syndrome, Mm -hmm. the sort of moral imperative for women to be pretty happy, calm, generous, and above all attentive to the needs of others Mm. at all times. And if you turn any attention to yourself, that's necessarily selfish. Mm -hmm. And you're like, your whole job is to give everything you have, your time, your attention, your love, your patience, your affection, your body, your hopes and dreams Mm. sacrificed on the altar of other people's comfort and convenience. And nowhere is that more true than in motherhood. Right. Yeah. There's this literal expectation that we will sacrifice and compromise our own bodies in the name of someone else's well-being. And and do it with a smile. Yeah. And do it like lovingly and patiently and gladly. mm -hmm. And just every moment is so precious. (laughs) I'm laughing because that's not true. No, Um. it is not true. (laughs) Right, right. A lot of the moments are physically painful and Mm -hmm. exhausting and infuriating. Yeah, for sure. It's a massive mixed bag. There's good and bad and hard and easy and all yes. of the in between and all the all time. All of it belongs. Like all of it is parenting. Mm-hmm. Right. Yeah, absolutely all of it. I think the mistake people make when they begin learning about the science of sexual functioning, like the dual control model and responsive desire, is they have an image in their mind of what they want their sexuality to be. Mm-hmm. They compare it with what their currently sexual what their sexuality currently is, and they hate where they are now. And they believe that if they whip themselves hard enough, Mm. they can force themselves to be that other thing. Right. That, that is not how change works when Mm -hmm. it comes to sexuality. Maybe there are other things where I I don't think there's anything actually. (laughs) There's nothing. (laughs) Right. (laughs) But for sure, not in terms of sexuality, because if you beat yourself, if you like criticize yourself and judge yourself, that, is that going to make it easier to like and want sex? Right. The thing to do is to turn toward your sexuality as it is now and explore it with curiosity, mm-hmm. kindness, mm-hmm. and compassion. What you have now is it. Like this is your body. This is your brain. This is your context. All of them are going to change. But where you are now, if you can turn toward it with kindness and compassion, you are creating the ultimate sex positive context. I talk a lot about my job in life is to teach women to live with confidence and joy inside their bodies. And one day a student raised her hand. I was giving a lecture in class and I said confidence and joy. And she said, Emily, can you please define your terms? (laughs) I was like, oh, no, let me think about it for a week. Uh And by the time I came back, I had decided these are the definitions. Confidence is knowing what is true about your body. So yeah, reading both Come As You Are and Burnout is going to help with that. Knowing about responsive desire and the stress response cycle and arousal not concordance and the dual control model and pleasure and orgasm and genitals and all those things. That's knowing what is true, even if it's not what you were taught to believe were true, even if it's not what you wish were true, Mm -hmm. knowing what is true. Joy is loving what is true. Mm. Whatever that is about your body, about your brain, about your context, Mm -hmm. even if it's not what you were taught is supposed to be true. And even if it's not what you wish were true, loving what is true right now in your sexuality. And especially when, if you have a partner whom you're trying to build a long-term connection with, Mm -hmm. if they can also turn toward where you are right now with kindness and compassion, with confidence and joy, loving what's true right now and not trying to make it different, 
that is the way that you free the brake so that the accelerator can do what it is longing to do. Awesome. Awesome. This is gold. Not so much a tip yeah. as it is like <laughs> one of the difficult things about the way sexuality actually works is that it's not that there's like a destination you're trying to get to. Mm-hmm. If you have a destination you're trying to get to with your sexuality, you're already screwed. Right, right. Because right. you dislike where you are and disliking where you are hits the brakes, which shuts down your sexual desire and pleasure. Mm-hmm. Instead, it has to be like life for me is not a journey. It's a destination. Mm-hmm. Here you are. Mm-hmm. This right. is your life. Welcome. <laughs> right, right. It's not about like where you're going. It's how are you living today? Mm-hmm. How are you exploring connection? How are you exploring pleasure today? Mm-hmm. In the body that you have today, in the context that you have today, the relationship you have today, how can you find your way to pleasure here and now? Oh, that's beautiful and applies to way more things than just sex and sexuality. Yeah, that, <laughs> like, that's like an everything have said thing. To me, like, it looks like a sex book. It's not a sex book. <laughs> right. It, right. It's a sex book, but it's... Yeah, yeah. The thing is, sex is just like a little holograph of your whole life. Damn. <laughs> Man, that is so true. Well, yeah, the whole life where where you are now, especially, that's just phenomenal. Thank you so much for your wisdom and knowledge and energy that you put towards this. And for me, listening to the books and listening to you speak is not, like you said, just about the sex stuff. Like you love this. This is what you do. I can hear the passion in your book and in your voice and and not only it's not just like something you love, you actually know what you're talking about, <laughs> which makes it amazing. Um, I've actually been in the middle of a science update and revision to come as you are. Ooh. Oh, there's my puppy who would uh-huh. like to go out real soon. Yeah. Just hang on a second. Yeah, yeah, yeah. So I'm feeling more and more confident about science and that the things I'm saying are actually true. Like on a neurological level, I could explain why it is that you have to love and embrace right now. Yeah. Because mindfulness. Awesome. Gold. This is outstanding. And I know everybody is is just eating this up right now. So I thank you so much for your time and I appreciate you being on with us. It's my pleasure. All right. So if your interest is piqued in learning more, you absolutely can and you absolutely should find Emily at emilynagoski.com. I'll have all of her information in our show notes. Go read or listen to her books, Come As You Are, The Surprising New Science That Will Transform Your Sex Life, and Burnout, The Secret to Unlocking the Stress Cycle. I hope you guys love it as much as I do, and I hope these books really give you a good understanding and a deeper understanding of how stress these days might be impacting your interest in sex and your feelings of closeness and intimacy. All right, everybody, take care of yourselves out there. It's a tough time, but we can all get through this together. Even though we're social distancing, we are still not alone. Thank goodness for the internet these days, right? All right, everybody, stay safe. Until next time. Thank you so much for joining us today. Please share this podcast. Together we can support moms and families so that no one has to deal with this alone. Come connect with us at momandmind.com. I'm Margaret. And I'm Amy. And together we host the podcast, What Fresh Hell?, laughing in the face of motherhood. Margaret, I would say you're sort of a where are my keys kind of mom. Correct. Sometimes a where are my kids kind of mom. (laughs) Well, you're aiming more of a we were supposed to leave 35 seconds ago, mom. 
I mean, touche. In each episode of What Fresh Hell, we come at a topic from our usually completely opposite perspectives. I bring the research. And I bring kind of the gimlet eye. Like, is that research really going to work, people? And almost 10 million downloads later, we're still laughing. We also talk to experts in the parenting field, plus parents with stories we can all learn from. We make each other laugh, we challenge each other's assumptions, and we have what we think is the best parenting community on the internet. Check out What Fresh Hell, Laughing in the Face of Motherhood, wherever you listen to podcasts.